Hello and welcome. You're listening to Student Experience by Design, and I'm your host, Boca Leston. In this episode, I'm joined by Professor Jeff Grabble, lead author of the book Design for Change in Higher Education. Jeff is also Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Student Education at the University of Leeds, where he leads the overall education strategy, ensuring that university attracts, excites and retains high-quality students from a wide range of backgrounds. Prior to joining Leeds, Jeff was at Michigan State University in the United States for nearly 20 years as the Associate Provost for Teaching, Learning and Technology. And he was also the Director of the Hub for Innovation in Learning and Technology, where he was responsible for facilitating innovation in learning and educator professional development, which is the experience Jeff shares in the book Design for Change in Higher Education. This episode is slightly different to others in that it was recorded during the Advanced HE Insights event that I hosted back in May 2022, titled Design Thinking Approaches to Student Engagement, and Jeff kindly agreed to join as a surprise guest. So I also included some of the Q&A from the audience in this episode. I really recommend checking out the Design for Change in Higher Education book, but also some of the amazing work around innovation and design capability and capacity building that is happening at Leeds. Thank you so much for finding the time. It would just be so lovely to talk about your book, talk about your work. I think design thinking, thinking about design as something that we do intentionally in higher education is such a new way of thinking about what we do. And I think it would just be really great to hear like your origin story. How did you start with design thinking a design and, and, you know, tell us a bit more about the book because you really get a sense of a story there that is something that you've had percolating in your head for quite some time. So give us an insight as to how you got started with design and the story about the book. I'm, I'm happy to, Bo, and thank you for asking me to be here. Hello, everyone. I'm Jeff. So let me give you a sense of the origin story. So my disciplinary background is rhetoric, which is one of the ways to think about that is the ancient art of changing the world with language. And it is, in many respects, an ancient design art, what sometimes we call the design of communication in certain contexts. So I have a quasi-design background, but the job that I was given was an associate provost at Michigan State was an explicit innovation portfolio, a new portfolio. And the provost asked me to help the university not just think about what it needed to be as a learning institution in the near future, but get us there. And so the question that we had to contemplate at that point in time was how to help an institution at scale, fundamentally now the language is design its educational future. And we did a lot of work on this and we invented this thing called the Hub for Innovation and Learning and Technology in an iterative designerly way to try to provide the capacity that a university needs to redesign itself. We'll set aside for the moment whether the people in the university think they need to redesign themselves. That's an, another issue. We settled on design because we were looking for a way to facilitate change management fundamentally in a context like higher education, where there are high levels of expertise, professionalization, and autonomy at the individual level and at the disciplinary and school, faculty, college level, and where a lot of the expertise for doing the work obviously resides with educators in those schools and faculties. So we settled on design, not just because we were trying to move groups of people from a current state to a future state, but we were trying to do so in a participatory way, in an inclusive way, and in an iterative way. And one of our principles was 
if you put the same people in the same rooms using the same processes, you're going to get exactly the same outcomes. So we explicitly had a no meeting culture. At Leeds, we have task and finish groups, which I've more or less banished. So what we're really trying to do with taking a design approach is change the people by making it more inclusive and participatory. Change the room, if you will, by using explicit design facilitation. And in that regard, help, help our colleagues get to a different place than they otherwise would have gotten. And so the book uses the case of the hub to tell a story about how one institution attempted to build design capacity to support change. And the particular kind of design discipline that we're articulating in that book is learning design, which we didn't invent. Learning design is a thing. But we do think we have a particularly interesting take on what learning design is. And we really do focus on the experience as the unit. The thing that is designed is the experience. And we have a broad notion of what an experience is. We think the university is a designed experience. We are inclusive of co-curricular and extracurriculars. We are inclusive of the services part of the institution as well as the academic part of the institution. So a module can be an experience. A particular day can be an experience. Welcome induction and transition is an experience. And so we really try to take a, a focus on experience and a focus on learning, put them together and understand them as all of those things are available for creativity and invention. And then at the University of Leeds, the reason I came to Leeds is Leeds currently has what I understand to be the boldest and most ambitious education strategy I've ever heard of. And the vice chancellor has invited, we're inviting the entire campus, all 40 schools, to imagine their educational provision for the near future. So the question is, what is your program of study for the next 20 years? If you could start over, what would you do? And people are really starting to wrap their heads around the fact that I need it and we're creating the space for it. But we have the same problem at least that we had at Michigan State, which is how do we provide the capacity and support for colleagues in schools to do this work? And this is where we have to be humble about where expertise lives on a campus, because I know professors like me think we know everything. And you know, how could somebody in a center for teaching and learning help us design something? They don't know anything. They don't know my discipline. But of course, people like me need to be much more humble about where expertise lives on campus. And so it's a team sport and we're trying to build learning design capacity at Leeds, just as we develop learning design capacity at Michigan State. So that when the school of law is trying to imagine what legal education for the next 20 years might look like, we can partner with them in a design team, which is a little bit of my central capacity and a, and a lot of bit of the school capacity, put that together take them through an iterative design process. We have a few years to do that and get to a different outcome than we otherwise might. So let me pause there. Bo, how's that for an origin story? So, I mean, I'm just frantically taking notes because I want to capture all of this and just see what else we can pick up as part of today. It's so interesting and huge projects. I think one of the things that really resonated with me about what you just said and in the book is this idea of language. You know, even things like change management, it just spooks so many people. And one of the things that it's not a direct quote, but it's something along the lines from the book is we need to sort of move away from definitions and professional boundaries. In the book, it just says they are simply not helpful. But yet in higher education, we do have a very strong sense of identity. And perhaps the language that's coming from the industry, you know, design, design thinking, change management, people are quite uncomfortable with that still. Give us an insight into your experience with that. And I also, I would imagine that someone from the US coming into the UK, there's also like a shift in culture and language there too. So 
give us an insight into that language difference, why that matters, how you go in, uh, about that and cultural differences as well, if you've come across those two. Yeah, no, what, what I've learned is I don't speak English. I thought I did, um, but I don't, I don't. I speak something called American, apparently. Let me start with design and design thinking. So in the book, we tend to use design and not design thinking. And the reason for that is, at least in the US context, design thinking can have reputation of being frivolous, playing with post-it notes, and particularly very serious people like academics don't play. And so notions of play and experimentation, I, I love them. I think they're great. But at what we learned at Michigan State, and I think it's just as true at Leeds, is very serious people don't do things like that. And so, um, so we go to great pains in the book to articulate our, a theory of design that's grounded in language. I'll come back to language and, and really make it clear that a design inquiry is an inquiry. So it has an invention moment, an ideation moment, but it also has to have an analytical moment. So we have to do our sums. And so if all we do is ideation, so I did a project with IDEO, for example, Michigan State did a project with IDEO and I thought, oh my gosh, we're going to learn so much. You know, that's the origin story of design. I thought they were awful. So it was all ideation and no analysis. And so we really at Michigan State and here are really working hard to make sure that if we open up the inquiry, we have to help people close the inquiry and do the analytical work, come to some conclusions, have some conversations about what counts as evidence and what we're going to believe and not believe. And then the last bit is iteration because this almost never happens. You have to have the courage to iterate. So you have to make something. So we're going to do the opening up. We're going to do the ideation. We're going to do the analysis. The analysis tells us to do something. We have to have the courage to do it try it, learn from it and do it again. So the magic for us at Michigan State was, could we get a group of colleagues to iterate twice? If we could get them to iterate twice, they were on their way. They were gonna, they were changed. They were gonna end up in a different place. So I think that that's why we've tended to trend more towards design and not design thinking to try to avoid some received notions that I'm gonna make fun of my very serious colleagues again that they don't play and do design thinking, they're serious academics. You're right about language. So we talk about the fact that what we really do is we design conversations. I think the most important chapter in the book is on designing conversations. And that's of course, true to my disciplinary orientation in rhetoric. And what I mean by designing conversations is what I think a design function inside a university can do is design the way in which people talk to each other and facilitate that conversation, set up a conversation which is different from the conversations that people otherwise would have. Now, some of that means including different people in the conversation. So at Leeds, we're really insistent that students are in every room. And increasingly, we're gonna to get to the place where students are on design teams and have some facilitative agency in that regard. So part of that designing the conversation is, is designing who's in the room, designing the rules or the boundaries of the conversation. How are we gonna talk with each other? So. What does the inquiry look like in other words? So we control that part of the conversation and then mostly sort of nudge and nurture it along the way. And that's consistent with the opening and closing and opening and closing of typical design processes. But for us, we pay attention to the nature of the conversation that we've structured for people to have. And we think that's a value add. In almost everybody we've worked with here and, and back at my previous institution, people have valued the way in which we've structured conversations for them. My, my favorite simple example is we worked with the Department of French at Michigan State because they were stuck 
on a new, what we would call here a postgraduate program and a new undergraduate program. And we brought them in, structured a different way of having a conversation as colleagues. And once we did that for them, we spent two hours with them, they were off and running. And they would always come back to the hub as the place where they did that work. So physical space is kind of part of the story too, but they didn't do that work in their department. They came to us to do the work. But once we structured the conversation with them, they were able to carry it on themselves. So the nature of the language inside that conversation matters a great deal too. So is that useful, Bo, in terms of your question about language? Yeah, absolutely. I love this idea of design conversations and conversation as a design practice. That's another thing that I've picked up from the book straight away. I'm wondering, especially again, moving from US into the UK context where US is seen here as like this interdisciplinary haven and everything's working so smoothly. I'm sure there's truth to it, but there's also challenges. What are those disciplinary differences? You mentioned the Department of French and from your kind of eagle view perspective, how are you navigating designing those conversations across different disciplines, but also functions, you know, professional services, academic, different kinds of stuff, third space professionals, does discipline and function matter? Always. And, and it, it matters that the U.S. is, in my experience, the U.S. is not an interdisciplinary haven at all. I have not found in this regard the U.K. to be all that different. Now, the U.K., higher education in the U.K. is more highly regulated than in the U.S. There's no question. And so there's sets of externalities that put pressure on what's possible in U.K. higher education that aren't in the U.S. And so the U.S. institutions have more degrees of freedom. They don't take advantage of them necessarily. I'm not sure that they really know that they have them. But disciplines matter absolutely in the U.S. And so all of the trans and interdisciplinary work we were able to facilitate at Michigan State begins first with the discipline. And that's just the way it is. That's, you know, most of my colleagues' commitment is to the discipline, the discipline first and maybe the university third or fourth. And so that is just as true in the U.S. as I found it at Leeds. So we're really careful. We always, in our practice, we try to exert a tremendous amount of care and love towards people's disciplinary identities. Because at the end of the day, this is identity work and people are going to resist things that threaten their identities in a way that they can't own. I, I'm not really answering your question, but we have that. This is a huge problem at Leeds, by the way. So the way in which incentives are set up inside Leeds really push against transdisciplinary teaching in particular. It's, the research is a little bit easier to do, but to build transdisciplinary programs at Leeds there's a bunch of structural impediments. I think they're mostly cultural, to be honest with you. I can deal with some of the structural impediments given my role. The cultural impediments are why we need a design conversation. We need to get the right people in the room having an intentional conversation so that they can work their way through some of the cultural things that are in the way. That's so interesting. And so someone who's gone through that process in multiple institutions, and one of the questions I certainly get a lot, and I'm just starting to dip into all of this is, how do you get started? How do you find that lowest hanging fruit, especially someone who's got a remit and the responsibility, but not necessarily the power? Is there advice or a trick or something that you would want to say to people? What's that first step? What's that lowest hanging fruit? That's a great question. So yeah. let, me tell you, let me tell you what we're doing at Leeds. Leeds is different than Michigan State, and so it needs a different thing. But what we did both at Michigan State and at Leeds is we were just getting started. And so I think we have to take our own advice. So if we want to move in an agile, iterative way, then we have to, I have to behave in an agile and iterative way. And so what that means in practice is a little scary. It means that we have to start doing the work before we're really ready to do it. I don't know any other way to do it other than that. You have to walk, you have to build the road as you walk it in this space. 
And by the way, we're willing to talk with you and collaborate with you. Whatever, everything we're doing at Leeds is you can see everything, you can know everything. We're a complete open book and we would welcome the conversation. So what we're doing at Leeds is probably because they knew I was coming in the business case for the education strategies, they built in this thing called the learning design agency. So they imagined that Leeds would have something like the hub for innovation and learning and technology. So we're actively trying to build something right now. We call it the learning design agency, but I can't stress this enough. It is a verb and not a noun. I'm big on nouns and verbs. So we're not building a new organization. We're not building a new structure, trying desperately not to build something that people are going to fight over because everybody wants the bright and shiny object right now. By building a verb, what I mean is we're trying to build learning design capacity on this campus. And because I think everybody works for me, I don't care where it comes from. So we have a good but small organization development and professional learning function, ODP&L at Leeds. That's where educator professional development lives. They have some learning designers and they're really interested in curriculum design and they're good. So they have some capacity. The digital education service at Leeds, which supports online education, they have some learning designers. And we have some professors and lecturers in departments and schools all over campus who have some capacity and interest in this regard. We have undergraduate students who have some capacity. We have postgraduate students who have some capacity. So what we're trying to do is assemble the capacity that we have wherever it lives and put it together in a small sort of version one of a team that is explicitly tasked with supporting some of the projects of Curriculum Redefined, which is the spine of the education strategy. So for example, if physics is building year one of a new undergraduate program for the fall of 23 or fall of 24, they're going to need a little design capacity to help them build that. And so this particular function is going to be part of that capacity that we have to help them build it. So that's what we're doing. That's how we're starting at Leeds. I've terrified everybody here because nobody knows where we're going. Nobody really knows what this looks like. Everybody's afraid to make a mistake. I'm trying not to sell this because right now I've got everybody running around like chickens with their heads cut off, but that's how we're going to build it. We're just assembling the people we have and we're going to practice and we're going to make a lot of mistakes and we're going to learn from them. And then based on what we learn, we'll start to add some capacity, do some hiring. And then if the learning design agency, this verb, if it's good, then we'll grow it and it'll land somewhere that it needs to land. But, you know, I think that's what scares people. From my experience, whenever we've tried to do this at Warwick, people go, but what is it going to be? A strategy, a module? Is it going to be a document? Is it going to be this? And it's like, we don't know. And that's the whole point. What's the point of starting to do something when you already know an outcome? But I guess that's one of the biggest challenges, right? Is to change the mindset of the people away from those predetermined, the way that I guess some of the people in higher education have worked in the past. It's difficult. You know, we have a lot of conversation about the new majority and in particular in, in kind of student experience design and student engagement, the hard to reach groups, right? So how, how are you going about that in Leeds? How are you making sure that you have that beautiful cognitive diversity that's not just political, that's not just tick box, that actually those student leadership spaces are open to all kinds of diverse students. How are you doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. So in our recruitment of students, so we've partnered with the student union, but I've pushed some resource their way. And my ask for them is recruit students to participate in this project with a preferential option for those who are typically underrepresented. So school reps and those that they can participate if they want, but I'm not as interested in them 
as I am in something like a representative sample of the student population in the School of Math. And I want to touch lots of students, not the student reps as a part of this process, not to exclude them, but they have roles and we can work with them. So we've been very intentional about our recruitment of student participants. And in our early design sprints, they've been brilliant. Um, they've been transformative because people like me think we know everything that students want to need. And I'm perfectly happy to uh, walk into a room and say, well, I think as Professor X that students need Y. But we had students in the room who would say, well, actually, don't really care about that. I care about this thing over here. So now we have a conversation. Whereas nobody's right or wrong at that moment, but we have more data, we have more information. And the more voices we have in the room, we can have a different kind of conversation in that regard. So it's a really good question. And that's how we're going to approach it over the next few years. I'm starting to hire students on part of my team. So as I'm building the team of the Deputy Vice Chancellor for Education here, I now have students on my team for the first time and they'll have meaningful roles. So I do believe in deep student involvement. After getting the conversation started, we also had an opportunity to interact with the audiences. So what follows now are questions from the participants of the Insight event that this uh, conversation was recorded during. Could you talk through the items on a whiteboard behind you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's my, that's my favorite. And I'll tell you about my favorite thing on the whiteboard. If I move out of the way, you can see the Paperwork Reduction Act of 2022. So it's interesting. Curriculum Redefined has an imaginative component to it and it has a rationalization component to it. So the way we do education at Leeds is too expensive. We have an untimetableable curriculum. We have 17 billion modules and 17,000 pro. I mean, it's just, we're just big and expensive and bureaucratic and so one of the things, the rationalization part of the education strategy is to reduce the cost of education at Leeds on people's bodies and time. It's part of the wellness and well-being and staff happiness and so on and so forth. So we, I do think we have this rare moment to do more with less. And so the board is a little bit of the doing less part. So I scare people. And one of the many ways I scare people is we're trying to, like we can talk about attendance, you know, attendance monitoring here was a punitive thing that cost a lot of time and energy and had no outcome. Why do we do that? It's not caring. It's not loving. We do some learning analytics, which we can get into, but it's trying to identify students who really need our interventions. But most of this is trying to make sure that the reviews, the QA stuff that we do is meaningful, impactful, and appropriate. I make people a little bit nervous because we're really worried about risk. I am not worried about risk. We are the University of Leeds. We're going to be just fine. But I understand it and I'm trying to learn. And reviews are fundamentally conservative. And we're trying to not, uh, the culture change here is to be continually progressive and inventive, not to shirk our responsibilities with regard to quality, not at all, in fact, to strengthen them, but to not let uh, the specter of accreditation or a quality review limit our ability to be imaginative. The Great Paperwork Reduction Act now of 2023 is one of our key projects. And we're going to go, you know, alpha to omega through the bureaucracy around education and flatten it as much as we can. And uh, that's an important part of the promise because the imaginative part of curriculum redefined can't be simply additive. We have to take some things away. We're going to have to take some programs away. We're going to take a lot of modules away, but we also have to take some of the bureaucracy away as well. In your experience, what are the biggest challenges of using design in curriculum development? I think the biggest challenge is it's sort of a braided. One is it's a new way of thinking and behaving. It's a fairly radically new way of thinking and behaving. And that's always a significant challenge, particularly for 
people who are as expert as people in higher education are. So in the book, we talk about all sorts of sort of thinking errors that experts make. Like you get a bunch of deans in a room and they'll solve every problem the institution has in 50 minutes, right? They're just a lot of confidence. So I think that the behaving differently is hard. That's a big one. And I really do think the courage to iterate and to iterate quickly is a really hard problem. In a more waterfall-y way of doing things in higher education, everything takes three years, which means the costs of making a change after three years of investment are stratospheric. So the courage to iterate quickly and to move at pace is really about reducing the cost of change for people. Because if they pilot something for six weeks in a module and really try to understand it and make some adjustments or just stop doing it, based on a six-week investment, that's manageable. But if it's articulated as a giant pilot project that runs for three years, at the end of three years, everybody's exhausted and bored. So there's never a second version of it. And so I think that that's really the biggest challenge. That's probably the part two of the biggest challenge. Give us an example of that double diamond, double iteration at Michigan State that you mentioned earlier. What was the first and second iteration? Can you give us an insight into that process? Yeah, the cleanest one was we've done some work, which I'm really proud of with Apple. So we've done some stuff, which like first in the United States with Apple. The simple version was we built an iOS design lab at Michigan State, which started as a co-curricular learning experience open to anybody using the challenge-based learning curriculum that Apple uses elsewhere in the world. That's a longer story. And we built the first version in three months um, and had students in it in month four. And... The first version was fine. Students had a good experience. It was in the co-curriculum. We learned a lot about it. Version two launched a couple of months after version one ended. And because we were working in the co-curriculum, we could work in a little, little bit of a different time scale. Had no problem recruiting students. Version two of that was very different from version one. Version three or four was in the curriculum at which point we'd found a place to land it in a module that was a transdisciplinary module. Any student could do it. And we had different teachers. We had yet a different version of a curriculum. So I think that's the cleanest version of it. And that's one of the reasons it's the cleanest version of it is we built that inside the hub. So I had complete control over it until we put it in the curriculum and then somebody else had control over it. And that was always the intention, invented in the hub, put it in the curriculum. If you were to design a new degree program, how would you test it and iterate it before students are actually enrolled in it? It's a great question. So the way I would do it is I would design it with reference to the adjacent programs that already exist. So we could test out modules and parts of modules with the students we already have. In the online space, we're using short courses as our design platform. So instead of rolling out fully online programs, we're first rolling out short courses, testing the market, testing learners, iterating in that way. So we try to use existing students and adjacent programs and things like short courses to do that testing and design work at Leeds. And Bo, you mentioned earlier about sort of hierarchies and power differentials in, in terms of academic staff broadly conceived. That's a huge problem. It's more of a problem here than it is in the U.S. because the sense of hierarchy, at least at Leeds, is pretty significant. I've learned that it's very important for me to be a professor. Who knew? And there's opportunities for abuse and bullying in that dynamic. When I ran the hub, that core team in my portfolio was the hub. I had other things going on. That was the first time my closest colleagues were not tenured track or tenured professors. And I got to see how my colleagues treated the non-academic professional staff of the institution. And I was not pleased. 
not pleased at all. In fact, really angry about it, still really angry about it. And so part of the cultural change I'm trying to pay attention to at Leeds is being kind and loving and generous with each other because that's the right thing to do. And we can't get this work done if we're not. I love that. That to me almost sounds like Adrian Marie Brown's emergent strategy kind of work. What's inspiring? What are you reading? What is sort of underpinning some of that thinking and your own innovation of self, you know, the kind of conversations you're having with yourself as a person, as a professor, as a professional. Could you give us an insight into what inspires you so we can also be inspired by those things? That's a really great question. So we'll have to have a pint and talk about the pandemic as a before and after moment, because there was really a before and after moment for me. I think I'm a slightly, maybe a significantly different person after thinking and writing a lot during, we wrote this book in three months during the pandemic, right? I spent the last two years doing a lot of reading about what in the United States context is a liberal arts education. And we have these things called liberal arts colleges, which one of my Irish colleagues calls hothouses for clever children in the United States. And they are remarkable little institutions and they have a distinctive approach to education that's not common in the UK. And the values of those institutions with regard to student experience was nurturing for me to revisit that and to think about what can we learn from that approach to education that could work in a large research institution like Leeds. I spent a lot of time reading leadership books, which were sort of unorthodox and really focused on joy and love and compassion. I use those terms seriously. And one of my principles is if we're not having fun, we're doing it wrong. And that joy is a fundamental principle of the way we need to work. And love is a pretty good virtue for how we approach education, the non-creepy versions of that. So I did a lot, I don't, it's non-specific. I could probably come up with a reading list, which will bore you to tears. But I did a lot of reading in, in sort of weird approaches to leadership development and liberal arts education. So interesting. Thank you so much. And I love that. I think with flipping the hierarchy of needs is how I often talk about it in yeah. my design thinking modules, you know, designing for join and not just for utility. So that resonates. And it's so amazing to hear that because it's so rare in her education. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, so we're real fast. You, there's this line in the book where we talk about, we ask universities, what do you design for? Disney designs for happiness. That's it. Happiness. They design for how everything they do is designing for happiness. And there's a kind of clarity and purpose that we would do well to think about, at least in our education. That's amazing. And the final question is, how do people stay in touch with you? How do they connect with your work? Wave the book once more so we yeah. can all see it. <laughs> I'm selling. I'm yes. shameless. I'm shameless. Um, uh, so yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I think I'm easy. I, well, actually, nobody's easy to discover on a university website in the UK. So it's j.grable at leads.ac.uk. I'm on Twitter at at Grable. So if you use that messy website, you can find me there. I'm on LinkedIn as well. So any of those ways, reach out to me, please. My invitation was genuine. I'm happy to talk. Thank you so much. I genuinely feel like this could have been a full day. There's so much fresh thinking there and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank, Thank you. you. It was a pleasure. Thanks both. Thanks everyone.